Thank you for listening to Okanagan Queer Story, a podcast about the queer history of the Okanagan and the people who have lived through it. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the unceded and traditional territory of the Okanagan Seal people. Throughout this podcast, we may refer to different spaces and places, sometimes by their colonial names, but we recognize and acknowledge that the land on which we are situated is Indigenous land. My name is Donna Langell and I am your host. Today I am joined by two special guests who have a connection to the Okanagan. In February 2023, Isaiah Bell and Sean Guest will bring The Book of My Shames back to Opera Kelowna. The Book of My Shames is a one-man cabaret-style opera performed with a small chamber ensemble. It premiered at Tapestry Opera in Toronto 2019 and has been developed with the support of Opera Kelowna, Pacific Opera Victoria, and Intrepid Theatre. Isaiah Bell, creator, composer, and principal performer in The Book of My Shames, performs across North America as a classical tenor, composes music and libretti for opera and theatre, and writes prose and poetry. Sean Guest, creator and director of The Book of My Shames, is an artistic director at Intrepid Theatre in Victoria, BC, the Kwangan Territory, and has worked with the company in various roles since 2013. He is also a queer artist who freelances as director and creator for theater and opera and makes an occasional appearance as a bearded drag queen. Please visit the Opera Kelowna website at operacolona.com to purchase tickets for the show, which will be playing at the Rotary Center for the Arts in Kelowna on February 17th and 18th. Welcome Isaiah and Sean. Thank you so much for being guests on the Okanagan Queer Story podcast. Thanks for having us, Donna. Hi, thanks so much for having us. Uh, Isaiah and I are both joining you today from, Isaiah's at home and I'm at work, but we're here in Victoria, which is Lekwungen territory, uh, now known as the Songhees and Esquimalt nations. So thanks for having us. To start us off, uh, I'd like to ask, how is the Book of My Shames a queer story? And can you tell us a little bit about its history? When we first started making it, the idea of the Book of My Shames as a queer story wasn't foremost in my mind. It's only as we've developed it together and taken it around. And I've interfaced with, with Sean's practice as a queer artist that I've come to see it in that way. Um, one thing that I'll say right off the bat is that the Book of My Shames isn't the story of my gayness for, for lack of a better word. Um, it, it, it's, it's a personal story of my own. It's, it's a, it involves a lot of stories of my life, but it isn't, a, we say in the show, it's not a coming of age story or a coming out story, but my, my personal relationship with the idea of being a sort of queer artist and, and, the, the, and the, the idea of telling queer stories has evolved a lot, even over the past couple of years. Um, when I was growing up, uh, sort of coming out and, and coming to terms with, with my own queerness, I was, it was at a time and in a place where I had come from, and we talk about this in the show, I'd come from a very sort of chaotic and, and sort of emotionally dangerous childhood. And so when I was coming to terms with, with my queerness, a big part of that for me was trying to envision a world where I could be sort of, in quotes, normal enough to, to be safe. And, and it was at a time and a place where I could envision a way to, to be openly queer and to be safe. But you know, like many people of my age, I didn't sort of want to lean into it too much at the time. And so, you know, I, I've, and I'm, we, we, we come from, a, um, or the, the tradition that this is coming out of, especially the opera tradition is, is a conservative tradition, as I'm sure we'll discuss later too. But, but so for a long time, I, I've been happy living this life where I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a conservative environment in terms of the way that the art is made. But the people are all very queer positive and, and, I, and I never feel that my queer identity is, is an issue. But then it's only as I'm starting to tell my own personal stories that that becomes something that we talk about. And so when you say, when you say how is this a queer story, I think, well, my, my personal idea of what it is to be queer is evolving as I, as I grow older too and as I grow as an artist too. And I was just thinking recently that for me, the idea of, of being queer 
isn't just about my gender or or sexual identity, my my sexual orientation or my gender identity, but also about the idea of being made different in some way so that you have to you have to look at the world with your own eyes and and often you you can't just follow in someone else's footstep because you're there's something about you that's sort of a little misaligned with the world around you and and so as i've been thinking about this it's almost the way that i think of my queerness is almost almost in in the in the traditional sense but without the pejorative context of someone someone that's a little a little different and for for me that even expands to to neurodiversity and to, and to to people maybe even who who have some sort of outward aspect that makes them at odds with the world and and so, and so my idea of queerness has really expanded in the last few years as I've been really dealing with with making queer art and being a queer artist and I think for some people that maybe is too broad of a definition but my, my personal definition of it is evolving as I engage with it and so for me, this is a queer story in that sense. Uh, we, we call it in the show, we call it the story of a whole because it's a, it's about, we try to allude to with with stories and, and music and, 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 and personal emotion. We try to all sort of point to this sort of unpointable thing, which is the, this, 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 this queerness, I guess, at the, at the core of, of, of the being that is me, like this, 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 this misalignment that has been the, the start of all my sort of existential exploration and the, 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 the question mark, the sort of incompleteness that always sort of drives me on as an artist and as a person and, and, that, and, and, that, and that changes shape as, as I change shape and, and as I change my external situation and, and as my life progresses. So that's for me why it's, why it's a queer story. It, it's, it's, it's not just that it's a story of my and of course it does also include uh, stories of of my loves and and my and you know talk about my husband and 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 very in-depth talks about about being a queer person in the in this our sort of new classical sense as you know being a person who's 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 does desires don't fit into the world around them as well like sexual desires as well but but for me it's it's a queer story in a, in a much larger sense as well I think that for when I think about this, I think that there's a lot of really personal pieces of it that make it a queer story too. Isaiah talks and sings uh, about love and you know misplaced affection. Uh, you know, there's a line in the show. It's like, well, every 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 gay boy fell in love with the straight, the hot straight guy in in college, right? Like or high school and. And there's, there's these pieces that kind of, uh, I think, unite a lot of queer experiences that are in the show. Um, the whole, the kind of coming out pieces is not what we really talk about in the show, but there's these, there's these pieces that kind of, I think, link queer experiences. And the show is called The Book of My Shames. And there's a lot of uh, pieces in the show where we talk and explore this concept of shame, which I think is a big concept for a lot of queer people. Um, we don't always fit in. We have to come out at some point, uh, maybe multiple times to different partners or family or in work situations. And there, I think there's this um, unspoken shame and sameness that a lot of queer people feel and experience. And we have that in common, whether it's spoken or unspoken. And I think the show really explores a lot of those pieces. And that's kind of some of the feedback we get too, is that a lot of people really see themselves in the show. And as much as it's a solo show and it's a personal story, we really have tried to make a show that speaks to the, uh, a broader context, a broader uh, range of experiences that people can relate to and see themselves in. And I think there's also something about the show itself that is queer in its conception. We're really kind of, in a way, we're queering the art form of opera in, in how the show has evolved, but also in how the show presents itself. There's, we, I say when I talk about the show that Isaiah talks as much as he sings, which is not standard for, for opera. Um, and he tells some really personal, true stories, which is also not what you really expect an opera singer to do. You think they're going to get on stage and uh, sing a beautiful Italian art song. They're, you know, they're not going to maybe tell this, sing this art song about uh, a drunken late night encounter in a hotel in Europe. I love that expression, queering the form. That's something that I, I only became aware of maybe in the last five years. 
because to me it sort of unites those different concepts of queerness the idea of of just sort of twisting something and of making it new i i think that's to me that's a very creative and joyful expression and, and i and i absolutely agree that it, that we, we are queering the form as well as telling a, a sort of classically queer story we started really developing the show in 2019 um before we premiered the show uh in toronto with tapestry opera as part of to pride that summer um, and the show has developed continually since then. The version that we did that summer in Toronto is not the show that we're touring now. It's not the show that we did last time we were in Kelowna. This is the beautiful thing about new work and especially solo work where the performer is also the composer and creator is we've been able to go back into development and back into rehearsal and really fine tune and really try new ways of approaching the story or Isaiah has written new music. So every time we say, every time we do the show, it's changed. It's a new show every time. Um, and then I think the show has kind of reached its final form that we're bringing back to Kelowna. Um, if we want to talk a little bit about the, where the idea for the show came from, I curate a queer festival here in Victoria at Intrepid called Outstages. And in 2017, I was programming a festival cabaret, which was local and festival artists. And I messaged Isaiah to see if he wanted to be a part of the festival, and if he had a piece to share. Uh, he said, oh, yeah, you know, I actually have this piece that I, I wrote for another performer, another show, but it never really kind of fit. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to re rewrite it for myself. Uh, I'm going to share this piece. It's based on um, uh, a... Uh, story from my life and the day before the cabaret Isaiah messaged me and said I can't do this like this is I it's my own story it's not people aren't going to respond to it it's too personal no one's going to care uh, I, I I don't feel like I can do this I'm not doing the show and I emailed him back and I said you know I, I hear everything you're saying and I think that that's exactly why you should do the show you're clearly really scared of doing this. And I think that's a good thing as a performer and as an artist, and we should try things we're scared of. And I, I kindly pressured him into not dropping out of the show. Um, and he did, he did the performance in the cabaret draped in pearls from a Christmas tree garland, um, which is still part of the show. Uh, and he shared this really beautiful piece. And I watched it from backstage. I was working the show. And I was so enraptured with the, with the story and his approach and how he was blending music and storytelling in this really vulnerable way. And the audience was like in the palm of his hand. And I emailed him a few days later and said, hey, Isaiah, what you did was really beautiful. Thank you so much for doing the show. And I really think that you have a solo show here. If you, if you ever want to talk, like I, I would love to. And he said, yeah, no, I don't, I, I, I don't think so. But like if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. And then a few years later, through a mutual friend, we connected about this, this piece again, and then started working on the show that became the Book of My Shames. Thank you so much for talking about the history and letting us know a little bit about how the two of you started working together. And uh, I'm wondering if maybe you can continue and let us know a little bit about how that creative partnership is, has changed over the years. <laughs> um, you know, it's very interesting for me because I, I've always been a sort of creative person off the side of my desk. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been, my, my mother is a very creative sort of crafty person and, and does drawing and a lot of, lot of handcrafts. And that's been a big part of my life since I was a kid. But as an opera artist, as a, as a performer in opera, as I mentioned earlier, it's a, it's a classical form in the way that, that the disciplines within opera are very siloed and so performers aren't encouraged to, to be creators you're encouraged to be an interpreter and a lot of the burden of your job as an interpreter is to be uh true to the source material which often comes from hundreds of years ago and so you spend a lot of time trying to be authentic to that original source material rather than being authentic to your own experience, which which is, and I don't think that the two are mutually exclusive, but that's sort of the, the ground of the practice that I'm coming out of. And so I've always been unable to quench, despite the, the chagrin of my sometimes 
uh, so some of my colleagues and and uh, agents and whatnot, I've been been unable to not also do creative things and and compose and write and 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 make weird little projects. But it wasn't really until Sean and I started working together that I got the sense of doing that in a really healthy collaborative way. Because a lot of my creative stuff, even when I've composed operas for touring companies and things like that, ha has always been me alone in a room kind of uh and you know not you know having workshop support and and not really not really a lot of cross-pollination of ideas it's been i've always been happy to because i have this sort of bottled up expression that i need to get out in whatever possible way that that is available to me so so i haven't really felt that i've needed until this point the the cross-pollination but it wasn't until sean and i started working together that i saw how much the top of your skull can sort of open up when you have a when you have a collaborator and another being who has themselves a, a full life of experience that's so different than yours and i remember specifically after we first you know when we first started putting it together it was a very quick process because we had to sort of slam something in place in order to get that tapestry premiere on its feet because often in opera when when there is funding for for new work it's not very much funding and and it can be very shoestring and and so we had this opportunity to 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 almost a break-even opportunity to just to just to put something up and and people were going to come to it and we were going to get paid etc and so we put this thing together really quickly i came in with this with just a real mess of ideas and then sean and i just really smithed it in two weeks into into something that we could put on stage and it was successful and people loved it and that gave us a, a boost to for the next opportunity but it lay fallow for like six months after that and I knew that we had to do some readjustments when we had a little more time before the next time that we were going to put it on. And so, uh, you know, after a few months of it lying fallow, I sat down on my computer and I opened up the document and I started making little graphs or little tables. Okay, so this part means this and this part means this and I'm going to organize these like this and, and really trying to do the sort of bird's eye view of the architecture of the show to make it a little more streamlined and to dramaturg it a bit. And, and but I was finding that I was just sort of I was I was making a lot of structural documents, but I wasn't really getting anywhere in the creation of the piece. And I remember very distinctly that Sean and I were meeting for coffee for like 40 minutes to talk about some other element, some practical element of the next leg of the show. And we just happened to just chat about some of the content of the show, just sort of briefly over over lattes or whatever. And that discussion that quick discussion was way more productive than the last two weeks of me just sort of trying to like hammer my brain into place like sort of pulling teeth of me doing the work on my own and for me that was the real start of a of a more really creative collaboration in a, in a way that i'd never experienced before because all my creative work had been very very solo very very internal and only collaboration between the different parts of my brain not collaboration between like different beings and so it's it, for me it's been a, a very dynamic process that's constantly changing every time we do the show and the way that we interact and and the way that the show changes is is very dynamic so yeah i mean i also was just thinking isaiah when you were talking about we did this before we went to toronto to premiere the show we did a workshop showing here at home because i really wanted us to get it up in front of an audience of people we knew and, and hosted a talk back after to to try to get some feedback because I said, you know, we've just been in this bubble rehearsing and creating the show for the last intensively for two weeks, but for the last six months in conversation. And there were so many great ideas and great feedback and conversations that happened in that room that night. And then we flew to Toronto the next morning and Isaiah texted me when he landed and said, uh, you know, I've really been thinking about that talk back last night. It was so great. I have a new draft of the show. I rewrote it. I rewrote the show on the plane. Um, and I was like, great. Perfect. Like, let's, let's, let's get into rehearsal, right? We're, we're at the studio tomorrow. So, like, let's, let's dive into it. And I think a lot of people who collaborate in this way um, would be maybe be scared. Like, oh, no, we've made the show. Like, now let's just do it. And... I just dove in and we both just dove in and we're like, yes, let's, yes, we're both excited about, we're both passionate about this project. Let's see how we can kind of develop and, and, and fine tune and create on its feet, which I think is not often how opera is approached, but really that's my theatrical approach. 
Um, and now we kind of say we're co-creators because the show has kind of evolved from both of our practices and worldviews and, and ideas have come together, uh, which I really, really truly love and value. And I, it's, this is a kind of creative partnership that you kind of always dream of, that you can just speak the same language um, and not always agree. Like that's also what's really great about it is that we'll say, no, no, he'll say, no, no, but it's, it's this. And I, I will say, no, 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 Isaiah, I think what you're saying, what you're doing is this, or, you know, we had this whole, we had this uh, um, non-physical way of communicating too. Like there's oftentimes where we, uh, the show will really talk. We try not to be too on the nose, but we also don't want to talk around things too much. So that kind of has become a whole, a whole shorthand. And if like, I just tap on the nose, like, no, Isaiah, that's, that bit's too on the nose. We don't need to say exactly that. We want to leave a little bit of breathing room for people to interpret. And uh, yeah, I feel really lucky, really fortunate to have this creative partnership and for the show to still continue. Like we started the show in 2019 and it's still developing and still touring in 2023. Um, and I think part of that is just because we're really collaborative, which is not often the case when you work with singers or with directors, I have to say. It's not how we're trained. Okay, so that was something I was going to ask because uh, this kind of like iterative process, like is that common for these types of performances, but I'm sensing maybe it's not. You know, I mean, this whole idea of queering the form, it's so funny because I have this real sort of split brain because I'm so attracted to these really classical art forms. I'm so attractive to the, to the, to the really gradual technical process that's been honed over all these centuries and for me the, the art that I like is art that that requires this real depth of technical knowledge before the before the sort of human inspiration element can bring it to life I mean you know the, I, I love you know old masters paintings and I love these these really masterful old pieces of music and but also I'm I'm so neurodivergent and I come from such a restrictive background in my life that I also chafe against the 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 the, the walls that the, the cage of it you know and so for me you know especially because as a performer my my sort of day job for years has been this as I mentioned earlier this this really quite corseted way of 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 producing as an interpreter I'm a, as a performer and so for me, the, the 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 experience of being a creator, I, I never went to school as a composer. I never went to school as a writer. And I think in some ways, um, I always saw that as a limitation in some way that I was never going to be able to be truly professional with it. But as I sort of look around and realize that I sort of somehow became professional at it without having to do that, I realize that it's my great strength is that is that I is that I don't have those same walls. And in some way, I'm reacting against the 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 straight jacket of the tradition that I love and 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 making new ways of doing it. And I think that really interacts well with with Sean's whole sort of mission statement as a queer artist queering the form. So we're making our own laws basically. We're making our, our own way of doing it. And of course we're we're coming around to I realize as we're doing this and I sometimes feel like like we're inventing our own way of doing it. But then Sean will say, oh no, this is just what's done in theater. This is just what you do. And, and so we're, it's not like we're totally reinventing the wheel, but I think we're coming to it authentically. We're not doing it because that's how it's done. We're doing it because that's the way that works best. And, and then the great thing about that is because I don't have a huge blueprint in my mind of how it should be done, it can be dynamic and it can follow the script where that's helpful and it can go off track where that's helpful and, and, and we don't have to be so held in by, by, by the ruts of how creation happens. And because it's Isaiah on stage, if he wants to try something, we talked about it and we try something that night and I take notes from the stage management booth, like, oh yeah, this, this worked. Like, no, let's, let's cut this tomorrow. So um, I think there's also something uh, about the creative partnership where there is such an excitement where different disciplines come together. I love work like that, where you're, you're merging disciplines and ideas and form. And that show is doing exactly that. And I really think that it doesn't happen a lot in opera, but it's changing. That's changing. It's happening more. Um, but I think for queer people together to share a queer story is really important. And that's one piece that I, of our partnership that I also want to speak about is 
is bringing two queer artists together. Um, as much as this is Isaiah, Sean Isaiah's story, there's parts of it that are me in there too that I see and that have influenced pieces of the show and how it's put together. And, and it's this blending of, of, I think, both of our histories and our shared experience, but there's also um, a universality in that. And I'm hoping that the queer collaboration um, makes that possible and makes it so that um, queer audiences and non-queer audiences see themselves in this story, that we're bringing different experiences together in this creative partnership to tell a story. Yeah, you know, sometimes in theater, there's a solo show. It's written and performed by the same person. It's their own story and they have self-directed and they are performing it. Um, and you don't get that sort of outside partnership. And I think that's what's really great about this piece, um, at least for me, is that we're able to, as much as this is Isaiah's story on stage, it is his book of shames, that there is this creative partnership that's formed to kind of support this. And I think that's also really important when you're telling such vulnerable stories and vulnerable work that you have support. And I'm hoping that that's what I can offer Isaiah too in this show. And I'm really early on, I said, you know, Isaiah, I, whatever you share in this show needs to be real and authentic, but you need to be able to do this night after night and on repeat and tell this to strangers and tell this to people that you know. And I'm here to help support that and make that possible. And that's been such a big part of this creative partnership too, is, is just the support of queer stories and queer identity. You mentioned the audience. Um, I am new to opera and I imagine some of our listeners will be too. Um, I'm wondering, what do you think an audience generally expects from a classical performance? And how does this show meet or challenge those expectations? And I think you both kind of touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if you can go into a little bit more detail. You know, as you, as we were talking about, and as you mentioned it too, Sean, um, sort of what opera is, I think in some ways it's sad that we have come to see opera as this stuffy thing, because of course opera has always been coupled with wealth. That has always been a thing ever since the, the you know, the, the first operas were not for public, uh, for public consumption. They were things that were created for to be enjoyed exclusively by sort of court people, you know, in these in these private, extremely wealthy, privileged situations. But also alongside that, opera has always been this extremely creative place up until recently. And then, of course, recently, opera's discovering new ways to, to, to rediscover that. But uh, it, it's always been this creative interaction between all these different art forms, music and, and drama, and of course, the the the, the physical um, beauty of the, you know, the stage and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, Richard Wagner called it Gesamtkunstwerk, which means that the, the, the whole artwork, like, or the complete, you know, the, 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 the sort of the sort of all encompassing art. And especially in the 19th century, that was rediscovered as a, as a real way that an artist could sort of could sort of in for lack of a better term control the audience's entire pers perspective on something by by having a, a a hand in in all the different elements of, of what's created so for me it's it's what what attracts me to opera is the creative potential and the fact that it's weird i mean it, it's really it, it's i mean people think oh a lot of our our work in opera these days because of course you know the attention span of the average human is is shortening and is to try to make uh opera accessible and to try to tell people oh, don't worry it's not scary it's actually very normal and they're very they're you know it, 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 they're basic human stories which we do when we talk about this show too the universality of the show i think is a big element for us that we want to emphasize that it's not some niche thing that that you have to sort of be educated and 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 inculcated into our particular tradition in order to understand i think that's something that's that's really important for us for people to understand i think we part of the the smithing of this show has been has been to make it go in easier you know to to to, to make, almost that you don't know you're seeing an opera show until you're halfway through kind of but that being said people do expect nowadays this very stuffy thing and i think maybe some people also just don't know what to expect but a lot of times when you go to the opera you get the sense that people are going to be fancy like like they're like i'm going to put on a fancy outfit uh, this is the, the most interesting way you see this actually is 
when you go to the student dress rehearsals, which are always the most fun time to go to the opera, for, and as a performer as well, it's the best when you have a bunch of high school students in the audience because they're, it's just a much higher energy and they're, they're laughing at the jokes, which often sort of a more traditional opera audience won't do as much. Or to sort of titter a little bit, but but and and but you see these seventeen-year-old kids in their sort of you know clip-on bow ties and and their and their shiny tuxedos and and their prom dresses and there and there's an excitement of of like oh I'm doing something fancy this isn't what I'd normally do but I'm I'm sort of you know in this sort of fancy bizarro world tonight but for me that's not what's interesting about opera at all for me no, no, nothing about about what appeals to me about opera is that it's it's that it's a weird thing it's that it's sort of a blood sport in the sense that it's you know it's a very athletic thing that you're doing with your body the way the way that breath is used and of course the you know we we know about the 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 volume of the sound can be quite a lot and so i don't know the the way that we're kind of querying that is that for me there's no barrier between my most intimate personal and also casual experiences between the way that i that i enjoy life as a sort of casual private citizen and the way that i that i present the stories that i have to tell on stage it's just that the volume's turned up a bit um it's there's for me and this is sort of the essential thing about my practice and when i mentor people in this field who are also creators and trying to queer the form in their own way that's a big part of it too is that there you should never have a sort of gugunk in the road from being a regular person who walks into the theater to experiencing these transcendent art art moments there there's i mean i always think that i i enjoy rembrandt with the same brain that enjoys love is blind you know like like there's like there's no it, it's not like i put on my fancy hat and then enjoy this 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 masterpiece it's it's just that maybe you know maybe there's the you can tell there was more creative life force that went into it and so it's a more concentrated experience perhaps but yeah for, for me it's just when I, when i talk about sort of deconstructing the barriers to 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 accessing art for me of course there's an element of education and just people being exposed to it more to realize you know you, you can enjoy vermeer more or you can enjoy mozart more if you've seen more of it and you know a few things about the history so that you can sort of see more elements of it and the more you learn about it the the more you can enjoy it but i don't think it's a, it's an educational thing in terms of like in terms of like getting people up to speed so that they can sort of be admitted to the secret club for for me it's just, it's just uh, it's it's a very expansive thing that we're trying to do and i think that the the experience that people will see when they come to the show is the experience of some guy talking about his love i mean i don't come from opera i come from theater i was some an opera lover i'm dating an opera singer i've gone to lots of opera um I love opera. I think there's something of there's something about the ability of music and operatic music to really speak to emotions and to really be able to tell stories in a way that theater doesn't or can't because of the medium. Um I when we first started created the show Isaiah and I were having a, a conversation with someone from from a theater company and uh she was kind of asking about, you know, why does he talk? Why does he sing? And and we, I kind of said to her, well, you know, um, when the music happens in the show, it's when there's when there's stories he wants to share, when there's big emotions he wants he wants to to dive into. And this show was really we call it like a a cabaret solo storytelling theater opera hybrid, and it, because it's all of those things and. I love that mashup of it. So, I think that people who expect a traditional opera are going to get some of the really beautiful music they expect for sure, um, and a really incredible tenor singing. Um, but I think they're also going to see something new and exciting, um, and that's what's great about this show for me is that we're really be able to bridge audiences. I think, who, you know, when we did the show at Opera Colonna in twenty twenty one. We did a dress rehearsal for the uh, etc. youth group, who none of them had been to an opera before, and it was kind of like, oh, what's going to happen at this dress rehearsal for all these these queer youth who had never been to an opera before? What's this going to be like? Like it's so it, it's such a different art form for them. And then we had a talk back after, and it was so powerful 
and empowering as an artist and so fulfilling as a, as a queer artist to hear what they took away from it and what their experience was experiencing opera for the first time in this way and through this personal storytelling approach and through seeing their stories reflected on stage too. Yeah, you know, one of the things that, that I'll never forget that made me laugh so much was that this young person, probably 13, 14 years old, said, you know, it's so interesting that that these experiences really, you know, it's across time and and things that I've experienced I've things that I've experienced, you know, it happened back then too. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, okay, girl, this is 2005. Like, let's. <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, yeah. And it just seeing all these young people, very young people sitting in the front row, just feet from me as I'm talking about these things that really, I mean, really go straight to the heart of the, in, in one of the promotional, uh, write-ups for this it's it talks about life's awkward underbelly sort of like the things that don't usually make their way to to sort of grand art stages the 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 the, the really sort of nitty-gritty of being a person and of course you know if if you're 13 and 14 the last thing you ever want to hear is some grown-up person some ancient person who was alive in 2005 talking about that so 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 that that was something just seeing the, the sort of cringe on their faces and the, and the giggles i loved it they, they, they were laughing inappropriately constantly during the show and for me it was so great and and i was able to actually sometimes if someone would sort of burst out into this uncontrollable cringe laughter i would be able to i would pause in the middle of the story and say i know no it was crazy i mean you know the and and i think that that's something that i crave as a as a performer in this traditional art form is is really the the breaking down of that fourth wall which for for years for for centuries has been a part of this art form and which i think is no longer always necessary and which also i should say was not originally ever a thing when this this art form and also theater was was created of course as we know there was no idea in shakespeare's time i don't believe of of a, of, a, of a sort of imaginary wall that separated the people from from the from the people on stage, the people in the audience. I mean, you know, there's there's this, this constant tradition. We, we were just doing a, um, I was recently doing a, a Benjamin Britten, which is a 20th century composer version of A Midsummer Night's Dream, and there's all these uh, lines in there that were designed to be spoken to the audience. You know, this puck comes on stage and it just talks straight to the audience, says like, "Oh, check out this loser" or whatever, and. And now it's it's so awkward because we were doing it in this really intimate space, a sort of theater in the round thing, and we, we were we were not supposed to acknowledge that there were bodies, you know, really like a meter from us. And I think that's something that 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 opera is is coming around back around to too is is the idea of this really close. And we we won't perform the Book of My Shames in a in a huge space unless the people are only right close to us. We 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 want people to be able to we want to be able to see facial expressions and. Uh, and and them to be able to see my facial expressions and and that's that's a really big part of it because it's when it was first performed a, a colleague of mine said one of the great things about the show in this really raw form when we first performed it that I hope you don't lose as you develop it is that it feels like it's in your living room. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so great that you were able to perform for et cetera youth group as well. You know, I think uh, shows like this one are very much appreciated and needed within the Kelowna community, um, especially for youth. You know, Kelowna is a fairly conservative city. Um, currently, we have protests against Drake Storytime at the Okanagan Regional Library that are taking place. Um, some folks believe that Drake Storytimes or other queer-focused events are actually harmful towards youth. Um, and so this kind of leads me to my next question for you, which is, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your experience playing this show in a conservative context. Yeah, you know, something that's really stuck with me, we have done this show in a number of places that are more conservative than the place that it was created in. And so, you know, I grew up in an extremely conservative, almost the most conservative place I can imagine in Canada. Um, which we talk about in the show, it was uh, sort of how we describe what it was uh, is a point of contention, but I, I will say it was a, um, a fundamentalist sort of evangelical commune in the middle of 
kind of nowhere in in the north of Canada, and people who had who had purposely retreated from the world in the 1970s and 80s, so that they could be more conservative and 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 do things only the way that they wanted to without any interference from from outside bodies that were maybe more progressive or or taking the world a way that they didn't want it to go. And so I'm extremely familiar with with that way of of existing and the idea that change is essentially harmful um and 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 the way that that can that can some people can feel really safe and supported in those environments because of those factors and then other people like me for instance um find that to be something that sort of tears you in half and so when we did this show in a conservative place a, a, a while back someone sent me a facebook message i don't even know <laughs> what this person was expecting when they when they read the description of the show but uh they they sent me a message saying you know i saw your show i wasn't clear if you had grown up in some kind of a, a cult or something uh, which itself was surprising to me because i was pretty explicit about my upbringing in the show but maybe they thought it, it was it was fictional or whatever and they said i i just um am wondering why you have such a dislike for people of the faith because i talk very openly about my experience being being harmed like you know personally emotionally sexually harmed by by living in this context and i said to this person um i i first of all i sort of took a pause when i read this to just sort of bring my heart rate down a little bit and then i tried to write this measured response that stood my ground and 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 uh portrayed my opinion authentically without escalating or without alienating this person if possible i mean this also growing up in that environment i know that sometimes the purpose of engaging when you're coming from that place isn't to have a discussion it's to it's to sort of make your mark known but i wanted to have a discussion if possible and so i i wrote you know for one thing i am not a person who has a dislike for people of the faith i don't have a dislike for conservative values on the face of it that's i am a person who in some ways is conservative as we discussed in 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 my interests in in art and and you know sometimes i see the way that the world is changing and i think that it isn't good for the, for humanity and and for the future of the species you know like 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 some some of the changes that are happening in the name of sort of this sort of neoliberalism i find not helpful to the world and also i am a person who who's whose personal spirituality i'm not a religious person specifically i i've moved away from the idea of of religion in general be, because of my harmful experiences with it but spirituality and and personal faith are a huge part of my life and have have shaped who i am as an adult but but i've only come to that with difficulty because of the barriers that the name of faith and spirituality had around them when i was a child so i had to totally divorce myself from that world entirely and find my own path entirely in order so that i could come all the way back around the world to a healthy relationship with sort of spirit and with the divine that lives in the world around us and so it's when you ask what's it like to perform in a conservative place it's for me it's a sort of multi-pronged concept because of course there's all this really triggering stuff about about people who who believe that the world shouldn't be filled with people who are living in a way that isn't the way that they believe is the right way to live and i and i think that can be really harmful to to people who are just trying to live their quiet little lives and maybe also expose kids to to a different way of of seeing the world i all that to say for me performing in a place that identifies as conservative i don't feel myself essentially at odds with conservatism it's essential that that we come into into places that that have a different viewpoint than than we naturally have and 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 tell our stories sort of honestly and and bravely and and if someone walks out or if someone wants to send me an instagram message about it i'm happy to engage and and i'm not af afraid of of that element of it because i i i want to have a discussion i don't want this to be about me shoving my way of of thinking down people's throat in fact that's that's an essential part of how we're trying to trying to create the show is that the ideas that we have to me 
it's it's an expansive thing. It's something that's that's embracing more ways of thought. I want I want to bring people in. I don't want to shove myself onto them. I think that queer art and queer stories are universal. I think that this show has a lot of universal pieces of it. And it needs to be seen, and these stories need to be heard, and these stories need to be shared, and they need to be given a time and a place and a space. So I'm so thankful to Opera Colonna for, for making that space for the show and for bringing us back. It really, two pieces come to mind, and one is what is the role of art? This is a big concept, but if art is designed to reflect our way of living and ask questions, we're doing our jobs as artists. Art, in my mind, should be entertainment. It should be something we enjoy experiencing and going to and, and creating as performers. But I think it should also provoke people. It should ask big questions. It shouldn't shy away from, from showing points of view that not everyone necessarily uh, agrees with, but that hopefully it can bring people together. There is something about sitting in the dark with other people, with strangers, watching a show, experiencing the same things at the same time, that is bonding. It brings people together. And that's what's so beautiful about art and with stories. And maybe it's not something that you necessarily agree with or have even experienced before, but that's what's important. And I think that's what this show is trying to do in a way and why it's important to play in, in conservative and, and smaller cities. And I think the other piece that I want to mention is for queer audiences to see queer stories on stage has a big impact. For queer or questioning or unsure audiences, whether you're 10 or 13 or, or 45, to see stories that you can relate to on stage makes you feel like art is for you. It really makes you feel like you're seen, that you have a place in this world. For drag queen story times to be protested, for queer artists to be shut down and, and, and pride parades to be protested and picketed, it, it's really disheartening. And it really, I think, goes against this whole idea of the human experience. And we have more in common than we don't at the end of the day. And I mean, I feel like perhaps I'm a bit biased as, as a queer artist who runs a queer festival, but um, if you think, if you really think, whether you're queer or you're not, you know someone who is. And those, those stories and those experiences deserve to be shared on stage. And they deserve to be in movies and in, 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 in TV and, and by policing or thought policing or protesting these stories and these events and these celebrations, which is what they are, they're queer celebrations, we're really saying that this is wrong and that you shouldn't do this. And that's harmful, I think. I think, you know, I do drag story times and I see the joy in kids' faces when they see these stories happen and you spin your ribbon and you, you know, you wear your big costume and it's theater for them. Um, and it also shows them that there's people like them that are out there in the world and it's okay. And it's normal. And it's, you should be loved and deserved. And that's really important for me. You know, we say that this is a queer show, but we also want non-queer audiences to come. We want you to come and experience something in the theater. Maybe you haven't thought about it this way, or maybe it really makes you find new ways to connect with other people in your life. Whether they're gay or, or queer or, or questioning or, or trans or, or not, but there is something about the necessity of art and the power of story, and I think especially the power of queer stories to unite people and bring people together and really have a shared experience. Whether or not that shared experience happens in the dark in a theater, or you then talk to someone about it. Um, you message, you know, Isaiah after, we have a talk back after the show. You know, we are sharing the show with the queer youth group. Like there's so many ways art and the show necessitate conversation and and change and acceptance yeah i i mean this is maybe this is a bit um of a tangent but i recently watched a new uh disney film uh strange world i don't know if you're <laughs> familiar with it it's it's an animated film i have a four-year-old niece 
Um, and she's starting to learn about, you know, she, marriage is like a thing to her now because she sees it reflected in the cartoons and the, the storybooks. Um, and it was the first, uh, like, you know, popular animated film that I've seen with a queer, um, like, child character in it, essentially. It's a, it's a teenage boy, and he is very openly gay, and his parents are accepting. It's not a coming out story. It's just he happens to be a gay character, and his parents love him, and there's no, no questions asked. And uh, so I'm watching this movie with my four-year-old niece, and I can't help but get super emotional because... I just think how, and I mean, this is only the first step, of course, one Disney movie out of, you know, however many animated films they make a year is not enough, but to know that she gets to experience that and, you know, if that happens to be a part of her identity in some way, because, wow, did I crave that as a young queer girl um, to not see, you know, and it took me much longer to, to realize, you know, what I was experiencing because there was no examples. There was no representation. We were on tour in the spring and Isaiah had just watched Heartstoppers and I just started it. And we would like get home from the show uh, and whatever. And we were, we were texting about it. Like, and we said at breakfast one day, like what, what would our lives have been like if this would have been out when we were in high school, you know, what, what would that have done for us, for our peers, for our parents, you know, for our siblings to have this kind of representation and, and this kind of um, mainstream stories? Like, when we think about it, like, I think, when I, you know, when I was in high school, I would, like, turn the volume down really low on my TV in my room on Monday nights and secretly watch Queer as Folk. With, like, Same. hoping that, like, the light from my TV wouldn't bleed under the door or that no one, my parents wouldn't hear the TV on. Like, literally, it was, like, I'm, like, up close to the TV, the volume's at, like, you know, four notches, and you're trying to, like, watch the show because you crave this representation. You crave these stories because you don't know what it's like. Mm -hmm. You don't know anyone else in a lot, of, a lot of ways, at least for me, when I was growing up in small-town Saskatchewan, I didn't know anyone else who was gay. It was terrifying to think about being gay. And now here it is on on TV and Heartstopper in this Disney movie. It's so, it's so powerful and so necessary and important. And, you know, hopefully it does make people who aren't the three of us, who aren't queer, see queer people and queer stories in different ways. And going back to this idea of turning to conservative places, I think we need to keep doing it. We can't stop, you know, even if it's a conservative city, there are still people who want to support this and who need to see this. So, you know, yeah, when I was, you know, going to my local video store and getting all the VHSs in the late 90s as I was just trying to discover what the world was after we moved off the farm. Um, I rented every gay thing that I could get my hands on when I was when I was a certain age. And, and uh, one thing that I'll say also about the idea of representation is not just the idea of representing the identity, but of representing sort of queer joy. This has been something that I've that I've heard people talk about recently and that really speaks to me is you know, for a long time, if it was going to be, you know, Philadelphia or, or something about someone about about the, the suffering of someone who didn't fit in. And, and, and that was kind of, that was kind of baked into the idea of a, of a queer identity. In fact, I'm, a lot of people's parents said this to them. It wasn't just mine. I've heard other people say it too. You know, the, the line that I always think of is people in that lifestyle aren't happy. You know, like, and, and for a long time, I think that that was unfortunately more true than it was not true. And uh, so part of what we're trying to do with this, even though we are discussing the, the, the story of, of someone's suffering and, 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 and the gaps in someone's life, we're also right next to it, portraying the, the, the story of someone who is, who is happy in that identity and whose exploration of the, of the misalignment of being human, that, that the story of a whole, like, as I said, we call, we call it, it goes beyond that but who who only by by coming to 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 a sense of acceptance with 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 the way that they are can 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 have room to to explore the the, the awkward underbelly of life and and i think that that's um anytime you see a story of someone underrepresented that that isn't about specifically their identity like you said about that 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 queer boy character but that their their identity expands beyond that. I think of, for instance, um, Insecure, Issa Rae's show on HBO, which is which is a which is about 
these four black women and and their and their lives together but it's not about being black it's not about like that's not the that's not the central element of the show and i think that's that's another step that that a lot of these queer shows are making is that it's it's not just about looking at being queer and like is it okay to be queer or is it not but about expanding out beyond that and about that being a very life affirming thing the representation of of a queer life that doesn't have to be only looking at its own queerness like and that's 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 a real liberation in previous episodes we've asked our guests to tell us what they think the queer future of the Okanagan will look like um, instead, I'd like to ask you both, what does the future of queer storytelling look like and why are queer stories important? And I do think we've touched on this quite a bit through the conversation, but I kind of want to leave space now for anything left that you'd like to say um, about the importance of queer stories. I just want to jump off what Isaiah was just saying, which is about celebration and joy and that it's not just, I think the future of queer storytelling is queer joy, it's queer celebration. We don't it's not Angels in America anymore. It's not the normal heart. It's not Larry Kramer anymore, right? It's, we need to honor what's happened. We need to honor the last generation. We need to honor the AIDS epidemic. We need to honor everyone that's no longer with us, which is a huge, huge piece of what we need to do moving forward. But we also need to find joy and celebration of, of queerness, of transness, of, of otherness, of normalizing conversations about sex and sexuality and, and non-conventional partnerships and um, normalizing and, and finding the joy and the celebration in those pieces. And I think we're, we're, we're moving there. And I think that's the future um, that we can have characters who are just queer and we don't have to talk about why. We don't need their coming out story. It's just, they're, they're queer. Like we say this show is not a coming out story because there's so many of those and they had a time and place, but I think I'm hoping that the future is beyond that. Yeah, you know, I totally agree with that. And for me, there's there's another dimension to it too that is something that I struggle to put into words. And it kind of interacts with this sort of evolving definition that I tried haltingly to lay out at the beginning of the podcast of what it is to be queer and 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 my personal expansion of that beyond even gender identity and sexual orientation, which I know it, it can, is maybe um, something that might rub people the wrong way, but, and I don't want to lean into it too much because it's not something that is I'm wed to, but, but it's just as I'm exploring what is queerness inside me. And relating to that, for me, I look at the world at large. I look at what's happening in the world. You know, this sort of the, as people say, the dumpster fire, you know, the war and, and, and the climate and, and all this stuff. And I think we can't keep going business as usual. We can't do it. That's everyone knows that. We all know that. We just don't know what to do about it. And for me, something that that I was that really made my heart sink, um, sort of in the last year or so, as people have been adjusting to the new reality um, post pandemic, is how much people have just gone back to to the way things are. And 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 so many people are so attached to not having their lives change that will because of the way that our lives are going to be disrupted more and all that to say that that if if I, you relate it to to the way that I'm trying to understand queerness and to my sort of evolving definition of queerness as being someone who is who is misaligned with the sort of status quo in some way i think that queer stories are essential to the survival of of humanity in that way because it's always that I mean that's what evolution is. I think if I don't I don't know because history is so skewed, I don't know the way that stories are told, and that's of course the whole point of this podcast. I believe is is to, is to begin changing that. But but I don't know if there are more queer people now in the classical sense of of gender identity and sexual orientation than there were, I, you know, because of course we all know about how people had to hide. But if there are, I think part of it is about evolution in, in the way that 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 life is always is always mutating in order to adapt to to create biodiversity to, to to adapt to the changing world and we 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 have to have other perspectives that aren't the regular perspective we we i i often think you know the future is trans in in some way like including um you know transgender 
people and also trans in the sense of someone who has begun their life in one idiom or in one paradigm and had to transition to another one because of who they are on the inside or because of what's happening outside of them. I, I saw something recently that said the, the 21st century will be defined by people's ability to learn something and unlearn it and relearn something else. And we can already see that in the 20th century, you know, someone who was, I saw something about someone who was born in 1900 in Germany and lived to be 95. What, what did they see in their life? How many different ways did they have to adjust to the way the world was around them? And I think that if we're queer in either sense of the word, in any sense of the word, it's our responsibility to try to share our understanding of the world, not necessarily even knowing how much that might be the thing that might save us, that what's different about us. I mean, you know, you, you talk about like some some random mutation in in a in a moth that allows it to be to be camouflaged in in a sooty city, you know, like maybe previously being 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 sort of dark colored wasn't good for that moth who was who was living in in a sort of you know, leafy forest, but then suddenly that was the moth that was allowed to survive. And I mean, this is this is not really what we're talking about. And I don't want to get into it too much, but but the idea that that our our queerness is not just something that we have to accept, and not even just something that we have to celebrate, but something that we have to see as es essential to the, the the larger conversation that the world is having. And it's not just about the things that we're talking about only about personal celebration and about coming to accept ourselves, but that as a, as a starting point, as a jumping off point for being able to, to all be effective trans people as, as evolution's speeding up to like every generation, the kids who are 17 now live in such a different world than I lived in at 17. And it's not just about technology. It's about everything, everything going faster and faster and about how we need to adapt. And we need to, we need to bring the skills that queer people have always had, which are resilience, and an ability to have community with people who are individually different, but who who come together and 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 share something and and understand that there's a core thing that they all share that allows them to build a community together. I think of you know, um, you know the 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 classic story of of lesbians in the, in the AIDS crisis. You know, I mean, tr like you know traditionally, you know, sort of gay men in in that sort of Fire Island party circuit. And and you know a lesbian in New York who 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 maybe might live the same life or who might live quite a different life might not have something so much in common except for that they understand as queer people that need for 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 community and for shared resilience and that's that's something I think that we that we need to as Sean alluded to our our history I think we need to to be connected to our history and we need to have an idea of the future that 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 it, that includes a wider slice of humanity. And and that's the way that 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 I think queer stories can contribute not just to our own small future, but also to the to the future of of the species. Thank you both so much for sharing your stories with us. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you, thank you. For those who are listening, if you would like to purchase a ticket to the Book of My Shames on February 17th or 18th, please visit operacolona.com. There's also a limited number of pay-what-you-can tickets, which I think is fantastic for our community. So thank you, Opera Colona, for that opportunity. Thank you so much, Donna. This is, I mean, for me personally, just having the opportunity to talk about something, that's in some ways the only way that my brain understands something and that's why we make a show like this is because talking about it it's not and and i don't mean talking at someone which is something that i do as well but i mean talking with someone that's that relational element of understanding something for me is is essential and and is essential to the way that i i i would like to continue interacting with with other people so thank you so much for having us i think actually being able to talk about queerness and queer story and queer history and how this show you know we live in victoria i run a queer theater festival but actually to think about what it the impact that touring queer work has on communities is is something that should not be lost on us so having this opportunity to reflect on that has been really great and really meaningful so thank you
I just want to say, if you're listening to this podcast from outside of Kelowna and you love what you heard, or you want to see the show, The Book of My Shames is playing with Pacific Opera Victoria in May, as well as in Vancouver with City Opera in May as well. So if you missed the chance to see the show in Kelowna in February, or you love the show so much, you want to see it again, there's more chances to see it in Victoria and Vancouver. And hopefully elsewhere, if you're listening and you want to book the show, call Isaiah. Thank you for listening to Okanagan Queer Story, uncovering the queer history of the Okanagan, one story at a time. Hosted and edited by Donna Langell. Produced by Donna Langell, Tasha Jarrett, and James Sieben. The theme song is Never Sleep by Ryan Anderson. <laughs>